my goodness. Good morning, good afternoon, whatever it is for you. I hope you're having a fantastic day. My name is Zach Schaumler. This is Strong Opinion Sports, episode 280. It blows my mind how many episodes I've done of this show. That's crazy to me. This episode is really long. I was hoping to put it out Monday morning. <laughs> that is, uh, it's not going to happen. I'm recording this a couple hours ahead of Monday Night Football tonight. Last night, Sunday night bled into Monday morning. I was up until 4 a.m. watching football games. I recorded so many. I was watching football. I was taking notes, just having the time of my life. Today, we're going to talk about the Jaguars, the Colts. We'll talk about the Eagles losing to Washington. We'll talk about the Bengals. How did Joe Burrow do in his first game? Dak Prescott, the Cowboys, the Cardinals beat the 49ers. I'm also going to do a review of college quarterbacks from this past weekend. We will end the show buried at the very end, so you can skip it if you want to. We'll talk about the F1 race from this weekend. Gigantic show. Uh, We'll talk about Monday Night Football tomorrow. We're recording what I got to yesterday, tonight, and whatever I I don't talk about tonight, I'm going to get to as much as I can tomorrow. Talk about that tomorrow night. I want to watch the Raiders and the Panthers tomorrow. I want to watch what the heck happened with the Buccaneers. Maybe I'll get to that. Uh, Jamal Adams really interests me. We'll definitely watch both Monday Night Football games, record about them tomorrow night. Um, But right now, first of all, i got to say this. Outside where I live feels like an apocalypse. I have never seen anything like it. The air quality index earlier today said 520. And if you don't know, that's equivalent to smoking over 23 cigarettes in one day. If you go outside and breathe the air, there are fires burning like crazy where I live. Uh, The sun is blocked out. It's really horrific, actually. And it feels like an apocalypse. So for me, football, a very much welcome (laughs) distraction from the world. Um, And I I just, man, I love my life, but I know that everyone out there has struggles and has moments. And for me, football is the best escape. When the sky is orange and red and 2020 feels like it just keeps beating us over the head with bad news after bad news after bad thing. Uh, like, you can't even go outside and breathe upstairs. You can't really tell where I live. I have uh, two floors where I live, and upstairs, I got most of the smoke out of this room. It's probably going to fill up by that time the episode is done recording. Uh, it's hazy. Like, you can barely go upstairs where I live. It's a mess. It's awful. It's a nightmare. And so I hope you're doing well. The smoke, if you're in the Northwest, man, I feel for you. I totally understand what you're going through. And for me, it's a massive distraction. It's hard to focus on anything other than... I can barely breathe. I can barely breathe when I go outside. Today's episode is sponsored by Manscaped. You go to manscaped.com, use promo code CLNS20, CLNS20 for 20% off of your purchases. I love Manscaped. This is the way I trim downstairs. I use it. It's great. I use the Manscaped Lawnmower 3.0. It really like adds aside legitimately if you have no other plan to take care of downstairs. For me, I was aimless. I was trying to use razors. That doesn't work very well. The Manscaped Lawnmower 3.0 has been a savior to me. It solved my problems. If you don't have a plan, I highly recommend using the Lawnmower 3.0. And it's very possible, if you do have a plan, that Manscaped is actually better than what you're using because they're trimming services. (laughs) I'll put it that way. The blades, it doesn't cut downstairs. You're not going to nick things and cut things that you don't want to cut downstairs. So... I genuinely, honestly recommend the Manscaped Lawnmower 3.0. Again, promo code CLNS20, CLNS20 for 20% off. So let's start today by talking about 
the Jaguars. Oh my goodness. Um, what a fun game. What a fun time. So in case you don't know, the Jacksonville Jaguars beat the Indianapolis Colts on Sunday. We're going to dive in. We'll talk all about it. But first, I want to make it very, very clear. I was wrong. And, and I think it's very important to admit when you're wrong. I believe the Jaguars were tanking. I had them winning two games this year. And tanking, and for me, what that means, I'm not saying the players were not going to try to win. Tanking in the NFL means that the general manager was trading away good players, and I thought they were doing that to try to get better draft picks for next year. You know, the players and coaches in the NFL, they don't tank. They have to try to win, do the best they can, because players and coaches have to put good stuff on tape to save their jobs or get the next job in the league. Or maybe in college, you never know. Coaches can go up and down in the NFL, the college football. And I genuinely looked at the moves the Jaguars made this offseason, and I went, that doesn't make sense, that doesn't make sense, that doesn't make sense. And for me, the only answer, and we'll talk about why I was wrong, but the only answer for me was, I genuinely thought, this general manager, the decision makers in Jacksonville, they're not trying to win. I was like, this is just, there's too many bad mistakes. And so when the Jaguars beat the Colts week one, well, I was blown away. I was shocked. I had a great time watching the game. And I believe, again, it's incredibly important that when new information is made available and when you're proven wrong, you have to admit it. It's super important. Whether we're talking about sports or you're fighting with your wife or whatever's going on, there's no shame in admitting you're wrong. And I have no shame in being wrong. I think the shameful thing would be if I had been myself, had myself proven wrong. If someone had proven me wrong, the Jaguars proved me wrong yesterday. If I was proven wrong and then was living in denial, that's shameful. So I've got no problem admitting I was wrong. And the two big moves that the Jaguars made this offseason that stand out to me, that I, w- I looked at them, those moves and went, it seems like this team is not trying to win. Uh, and they're not the moves you think. So number one, the Jaguars traded away their starting safety, Ronnie Harrison to the Cleveland Browns for a fifth round pick. Again, he was a starter. And they replaced him with a guy named Josh Jones, who they claimed Josh Jones off of waivers when he was cut by the Dallas Cowboys. And at face value, say it out loud. They traded away their starting safety, and they replaced him with a guy they claimed off of waivers. A guy who was cut by another franchise. The, the Dallas Cowboys decided, hey, Josh Jones isn't good enough. We don't want to keep him around. We cut him. And to me, you, you replace a starter with a guy who was cut. I go, that sounds like a team that's tanking. And on Sunday, guess what happened? <laughs> Josh Jones played really, really good. And, you know, the guy the Cowboys cut was a lot better than I expected. And it turns out that choosing Josh Jones instead of Ronnie Harrison, oh, Well, that was a good move. Zach was wrong. And then another move was made, and I was baffled and confused when the Jaguars cut their running back, Leonard Fournette, a former first-round pick. And on Sunday, the starting running back for the Jacksonville Jaguars was an undrafted rookie-free agent named James Robinson. And there has not been an undrafted rookie-free agent running back starting on day one in the NFL in 30 years. To me, I went, wow, this team, again, they cut a first-round pick, and instead they're playing an undrafted rookie free agent running back. 
That sounds like tanking when you say it out loud. And then I watched what happened on Sunday, proven wrong again. And I have no problem admitting I was wrong. In fact, it was really, really fun to watch James Robinson. It was awesome. It was just a blast. The dude ran for 62 yards. He had another 28 receiving. Uh, you know, James Robinson had 90 yards from scrimmage on Sunday. In contrast, Leonard Fournette, the former Jaguars running back with his new team, Tampa Bay. James Robinson, undrafted rookie free agent, had 90 yards from scrimmage. How many did Leonard Fournette have? 19. 90 to 19. Okay, Zach. Wrong again. Got no problem with it. And the reality is that the Jacksonville Jaguars have a lot of interesting young players that I think played really, really well on Sunday to beat the Colts. And for me, I was excited. Part of my narrative, I did, you know, the whole prediction, Jaguars go 2-14. and 14. I went through their roster or through their schedule. I picked their wins and losses. I found two, and I did that. But I did say one of the things I was excited about with Jacksonville was what young players that are unexpected are going to emerge and play really well. And what I did not expect was that it was going to happen automatically week one. I was like, I just, it was way faster than I possibly could have imagined. And so rookie corner, C.J. Henderson, I thought maybe he was going to struggle early on. Nope, not at all. He had a great day. He grabbed an interception. Uh, C.J. Henderson, the rookie corner, also made a great key final play against a really good veteran receiver, T.Y. Hilton, the the best receiver that the Colts have. C.J. Henderson had a really good day against him, and the final play of the game for the Colts was C.J. Henderson knocking the ball away. And I went, okay, well... C.J. Henderson can play. And then rookie linebacker, first-round pick, Kalevon Chasson had a, and I think, Kalevon Chasson, Chasson, I don't know. The pronunciation is not important for me, and, and I apologize if I'm getting his name wrong. That's not the point here. The point was, he was great. He had an interception. They got called back, but Kalevon had an interception. I went, okay, this dude. And getting called back was unfortunate because it was on a holding play, like, away from the play. It's like, that's a stupid penalty to have but it wasn't his fault he was great running back James Robinson a rookie undrafted free agent out of nowhere awesome rookie receiver LaVisca LaVisca Chenault great had a touchdown again there is some really solid young talent here in Jacksonville I have no problem admitting I was wrong and the moves that I thought were bad moves turns out oh wow well they were actually good moves that I'm just hey I don't know everything I'm not not Like, I don't have a crystal ball and can predict the world. Uh, So I was wrong. I underestimated the Jacksonville Jaguars. I had a good time watching them win against the Colts. I do want to say, though, I am not a Jaguars hater. I want to be very, very clear about something. I make a prediction, and I try to be as objective as I possibly can. I don't make decisions out of emotion. I make decisions out of what I see. And so for me, I looked at the Jaguars, what they were doing. I had a theory. They're tanking. I was wrong. But I want to be very clear. I love the Jaguars quarterback, Gardner Minshew. He's my favorite player in the NFL. And I've been saying that Gardner Minshew was great even before he was a member of the Jacksonville Jaguars. Go back to my film analysis. I did a film analysis of him out of college at Washington State. I watched him play live. I did another film analysis last year. I said, hey, Gardner Minshew is the better quarterback than Nick Foles. He should play. Go watch the videos. Go look at my past. I have never wavered from my undying support of Gardner Minshew. I love the dude. And what I did not expect is that he was going to be this incredible week one against the Colts. He was awesome. 
He was 19 for 20 passing. That's only one incompletion the entire day. He had 173 yards. He had three touchdowns, no interceptions. Unbelievable. I'm so happy for him. And I think that Gardner Minshew paired with Jay Gruden, the new offensive coordinator in Jacksonville, it's a fit. Like I, I love that matchup. They work really well together. And I just got to say, I cannot. Well, the thing I've always loved about Gardner Minshew, not only the way he lives his life, he enjoys every moment, he has a good time, but Gardner Minshew has this undying, unwavering confidence in himself. And that, to me, is a big part of why Gardner Minshew makes it happen and can succeed in the NFL. I love watching it. It was so fun. And watching Gardner Minshew upset the Indianapolis Colts. That <laughs> was so awesome. And so good for the people. There are people out there that picked. Uh, I don't play fantasy football at all, but I know there are people out there that decided to draft Gardner Minshew in fantasy football. They played him last week. They got heavily rewarded. And in fact, they get a free beer from Bud Light, which is just crazy to me. So uh, good for them. Um, I want to say, I am starting to believe, oh, and by the way, before I get into the, the next part of this, is that the offensive line for the Jaguars was better than I expected. Uh, I, I missed on that as well. They, they really had a lot of push. I mean, the Colts are not bad up front. They're very good up front. And yesterday, the Colts kind of got pushed around at times by the Jacksonville Jaguars. As I go down the list of things I was wrong about, about the Jaguars, it's like, wrong, wrong, wrong. Wrong. I mean, I had to pick a side, and I picked the wrong side on just about everything <laughs> with the Jacksonville Jaguars. Now, again, I'm starting to believe that the reason why the Jaguars traded people away was they traded away guys and got rid of guys who didn't want to be there. I really believe that the Jaguars kept telling people, look, if you don't want to be here, if you don't want to be involved in what we're building, then we're not going to force you to be a part of this. Jalen Ramsey, bye. Uh, Ronnie Harrison, Bye. Well, they, I think that was more about they had a better safety. Uh, Yannick Ngakwe, if Yannick Ngakwe doesn't want to be here, take a hike. Get out of here. Leonard Fournette, if you don't want to be here and you don't like what we're doing, then get out of here. And I think a lot of the moves the Jaguars made can be easily explained by them saying, look, we just are not going to force guys to be here that don't want to be a part of what we're building. We're trying to build something. If you're a problem and if you're in the way, we don't need you here. And that's actually a lot of confidence and pretty cool when you look at it that way. Um, I thought they were tanking. I think clearly that's not really true. They made some moves that seemed bad that are actually, they panned out pretty well, at least week one. And I will say, though, there was clearly a decision in Jacksonville to get younger. They traded away Calais Campbell. They traded away, they traded away people. At, was it Calais Campbell? They traded away some defensive end. I went, wow, that's a, that's a weird move. But because they were trying to get younger. It's pretty clear to me the Jaguars were trying to get younger this offseason, have a building year with a young, talented core group of players, and it is, so far, one week, I don't want to overreact, but one week in, the Jaguars' awesome core of young players, Gardner Minshew is a blast, uh, DJ Chark is really good, LaVisca Chenault is awesome, James Robinson, who could have thought that was going to work? Um, just a lot of, lot of fun watching the Jaguars week one, prove me wrong, and upset the Indianapolis Colts. Now, why did the Colts lose on Sunday? So number one, the Jaguars played really, really well. But number two is that the Colts quarterback, in, uh, Phillip Rivers, I almost said Indianapolis Rivers, which makes no sense. Uh, Phillip Rivers, the Colts quarterback. <sighs> I love the dude. I, I really like him. 
He's fun to watch. There was a completion that stands out to me where Phillip Rivers got his legs taken out of him as he throws the ball to a corner on third and seven to Paris Campbell. I went, wow, that stuff's fun. Phillip Rivers is a fun quarterback to watch. But I got to say, man, it's a big problem here is Phillip Rivers had two costly interceptions. Really should have been three. By the way, one interception he got called back on a fourth and like fourth and two, I believe, maybe fourth and three, a fourth down where Philip Rivers threw an interception to Caleb on Sasan got called back. Um, look, I had a Colts fan send me a message yesterday. He said, well, other than the interceptions, Philip Rivers was pretty good. And, and sure, like, yeah, Philip Rivers had a good day if you take away the interceptions, but you can't just take away the interceptions. They happened and they're a problem. And Philip Rivers makes way too many emotional decisions where, you know, he had two interceptions on third down, one on fourth down that didn't count. And he's making throws on third and fourth down that he shouldn't make because he really badly wants a first down. He's very aggressive and he's like, I want this first down. But they're not necessarily good decisions. He's making throws because he wants a first down, not because it's the right place to throw a football. And by the way, the first interception that Philip Rivers threw was the worst. Third and 10. Terrible. Eat it. Take the sack. Punt the ball away. Don't give the ball away to the other team. And so I just look at Philip Rivers. I go, man, this guy keeps forcing throws into coverage. Philip Rivers, if he can figure it out, is the right answer for the Colts. But he's got to be better. I mean, I don't know what happened yesterday, uh, but this is not a new thing with Philip Rivers. I thought maybe that this was just a Philip Rivers was on the L.A. Chargers last year and. You know, on a team that was losing a lot and was down, and I—I I don't know. Philip Rivers yesterday made not one, not two, but three bad decisions on third and fourth down. Two interceptions should have had three, and he got lucky. There was a holding penalty on that uh, other interception that was like away from the play. I mean, Philip Rivers, oh come on, dude! And it's—it's it's frustrating because the Colts have a really good team on paper. But Rivers, man, let them down yesterday. And if he doesn't clean up his act and stop making emotional mistakes, then the Colts are going to go nowhere this year and have another season where they got a really good team and the quarterback, once again, is the problem. All right, I need to drink some water for this next topic. Uh, what a fun one, the next one. We're going to talk about Washington next, which, oh, you Washington fans, um, you want to hear me talk about your team and you want to hear me eat some crow. I will. It's a lot of fun. You know, I tried today to start my two lead topics with things I was wrong about. I'm not going to gloat later about the Cardinals. That was a fun win. Um, but the Washington football team beat the Eagles yesterday on Sunday. And what a cool game. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I predicted Washington to win two games this year. And already it looks like that prediction was wildly... Wildly wrong. I got no problem with it. It was an interesting game. There are two sides to it. And if you want to just hear about the Eagles, you can skip ahead. I'm going to talk about Philadelphia in a minute. But Washington really impressed, and they surprised me yesterday. So early on, by the way, if you if you didn't watch the game, early on, though, Philadelphia dominated. I mean, Philadelphia was up 17 to nothing their first drive. I mean, they moved through the, <laughs> the Washington defense like they were not even there. It was like routes on air, like... Bang, 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 touchdown drive number one. And Carson Wentz early on in this game 
was dominating. Did you watch the first drive? The first drive especially was like, oh my, this this Washington team has no answer for Carson Wentz. And I, I, they looked effortless. I mean, the first two plays were big gains. Then, like I said, bang, 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 touchdown Eagles. And I went, oh, Washington is in trouble. And if you judge the game off just the first quarter, it, it would have been a 50 to nothing blowout. And by the way, early in this game, Washington quarterback Dwayne Haskins really struggled. They were down 17 to nothing. He started just three of 12 passing. And I got to say, regardless of how we finished the game, Dwayne Haskins has to be better with accuracy. He, his accuracy was all over the place yesterday. He was very inaccurate early on. Um, and he's still, again, moving forward, regardless of the way the game was finished, he's got to be better next week. But Washington had this moment where they had a fork in the road, where they were down 17 to nothing. And that's a lot of adversity where they could either choose to go, we're going to let this game get away from us, or we're going to arch our backs and fight even harder. Last year, the Washington football team would have lost this game by 40 points. They were down 17 to nothing early. Last year, they didn't have the resilience to fight through that. This year, down 17, they didn't back down. They proved this is not last year. They fought back. And to me, what that does is says a lot about their new head coach, Ron Rivera. Oh, my gosh. I love Ron Rivera. They've completely bought into him. He's fighting cancer. He had an IV at halftime. And his team has said, we are all in on what Ron Rivera is doing. And it was so cool. And then later when the game was tied, as, Was- as Washington fought back, and the game was 17-17, to and it was fourth and one for Washington. On the three-yard line, instead of kicking a field goal, just simply taking the lead, Ron Rivera said, I am confident in my team. And he put his faith in his team. And it was my favorite moment of the year because Washington got the first down. They ran for it. They got it just, just barely. And then they scored a touchdown two plays later. They won 27-17. to It was awesome. Like, just a cool, really fun game and a fun win for Washington. And I got to say, I was just flat wrong about this team. I was completely, completely flat wrong. When they got rid of Adrian Peterson, I took that as a sign of this team saying, you know, we're really rebuilding. We're working towards next year. We're not going to be competitive this year. We're getting rid of Adrian Peterson because we're going to invest in our young running backs and rebuild and retool. We're just going to focus on developing young talent. It was just wrong. I, I was just wrong about Washington. In the preseason, I saw that their starting tight end was going to be Logan Thomas, the former Virginia Tech quarterback. I said, what? Your tight end is a quarterback? Like the, I just was, I had no faith. And I don't, I don't mind being wrong about this. I looked at what they were doing and going, Adrian Peterson's gone. Your tight end's a former quarterback. What's happening? And the reality is, oh, uh, the running backs they chose can play. And Logan Thomas turns out is a really, really good tight end. I don't know how I missed it. And then, guys, the biggest whiff of me, my entire prediction and what was going on, I was excited to watch Montez Sweat. I was excited to watch Chase Young, uh, the number two overall pick in the NFL draft this past year. But what I didn't account for is just how dominating and just how good Washington's defensive line is. They are just unreal. They have five players that were drafted in the first round of the NFL draft on this defensive line. They had not one, not two, not three, not five. They had eight sacks on Sunday against Carson Wentz and the Eagles. That's unbelievable to me. So again, Chase Young, number two overall pick. Montez Sweat, a former first-round pick from last year, from 2019. He looks way better, by the way. 
And then you look at, well, what's what about their defensive tackles? They've got Deron Payne, the 2019 13th overall pick at D-tackle. They have Jonathan Allen, the 2017 17th overall pick. Oh, and by the way, rotating in a really good defensive end, Ryan Kerrigan, who was the 2011 16th overall pick. Okay, I get it. There's a lot of talent here on the Washington defensive line. Again, Zach was wrong. I admit it. I can own it. I don't, I've got no problem saying I was wrong. I am excited about Washington. I clearly underestimated them, and I still want to see their quarterback, Dwayne Haskins, be a more accurate as the year goes on. He can't play like he did in the first half. He just that can't. Three for 12 passing with a bunch of throws in the dirt and really bad incompletions cannot happen for Dwayne Haskins. Um, I worry for him moving forward. He's got to be more accurate. But almost everything I saw yesterday from Washington, I loved. And my favorite thing about this team was the way they fought back down 17. Last year, that team loses the game by 40. This year, they're a different team. And for me, it's a blast to see. Now, the Eagles. Oh, boy. If I was an Eagles fan, after watching my team lose week one, I'd be very upset. I would be distraught. I would be concerned. Uh, Number one. The Eagles already have a ton of injuries. They are decimated already somehow. They had five starters out going into this game. They had a couple more guys get hurt during the game. They lost Vinnie Curry. They lost Brandon Graham. Two defensive ends. That's a huge blow. So the Eagles are already decimated by injuries. Terrifying. Problematic. I, I, just, I don't want to overreact and say the Eagles are doomed. But I feel pretty good about saying they're going to go 7-9 and nine this year, given what we saw yesterday with... Injuries already being a problem. But number two, and this is the concerning, baffling, weird, unexpected thing that happened yesterday with the Philadelphia Eagles. Yesterday, the Eagles quarterback Carson Wentz just fell off a cliff in the second half. I've never seen a quarterback do that where for a long time, and I got to say, I have championed. Carson Wentz, I've held the dude on a pedestal. I've said he's elite. I, for a long time, have been really, really championing and touting about how good Carson Wentz is. And yesterday, he let me down. Yesterday, Carson Wentz made me look really stupid, where dude was not elite yesterday, even a little bit. And I don't, you you can't be an elite quarterback and do what he did yesterday. He's now no longer elite. I just, I, I can't see a quarterback do either no longer or never was. Maybe I was just wrong from the beginning. Um, But Carson Wentz started great yesterday, was dominating early. The first drive, especially from the Colt, from the the Eagles. I went, Oh wow. That's a, they're just cutting through this Washington defense, like a knife through butter. But as the game started going sideways, as guys started getting injured, as Washington started coming back and Carson Wentz got sacked a couple times, Carson Wentz fell apart. That's that's not good. He missed multiple throws where guys were open. He had a throw to Jalen Rager deep downfield. He overthrew it. He had another one I just can't get out of my head where he missed it. I'm like, how do you miss that throw? He was overthrowing guys. He had two interceptions. He had a guy over the middle just airmailed it way over everybody's head. And he had a really bad sack on third and eight where the Eagles were in field goal range. It looked good. And then on third and eight, Carson Wentz took a sack, and it was bad. He kept backpedaling, losing more and more ground, losing more and more yards, making the field go harder. It cost his team three points. That can't happen. Wentz was really bad yesterday. And yes, he was sacked eight times. And that's never good. 
But despite being sacked eight times, it's not like he didn't have opportunities to complete passes downfield. He was inaccurate. He had really bad misses. He was a problem yesterday. Not to mention two interceptions, bad decision-making. He was wild and inaccurate. He made bad decisions. He had that third and eight sack that he took, which was just baffling and frustrating. I, I don't know what to say. Carson Wentz was a disappointment yesterday. And that can't happen from your franchise quarterback. You're paying as much money as the Eagles are paying. Carson Wentz, that loss, I don't want to put too much on the quarterback. We overreact. We say it's all the quarterback's fault. But yesterday, it's unavoidable to say that Carson Wentz had opportunities yesterday. Not one, not two, but many. And he didn't take advantage. And a quarterback, if you're going to call a guy a lead, if you're going to pay a guy a ton of money, you're going to say, this is our guy. He's got to make those plays. And yesterday, Carson Wentz did not make the plays he needed to against Washington. If I'm an Eagles fan, I feel awful after watching week one. Our team is injured. Our quarterback played badly despite a good start. Um, I don't want to say it's doomsday for Philadelphia that's a little bit over the top, but I would not feel good today if I was an Eagles fan. I mean, you never feel good after a loss, but it's the way that they lost that makes me go, ooh, injuries, Carson Wentz fell apart, the offensive line looks bad. That's not good even a little bit. Now, I want to talk about the Bengals. As I swear, we're going to take a break in a minute. I watched Joe Burrow's first game in Cincinnati yesterday for the Bengals, and I loved watching Joe Burrow. It was a ton of fun. Uh, He was imperfect, but I got to say the Bengals are exactly what I said they would be. They're a lot of fun. They're imperfect. They're an okay team that's not going to win a lot, but man, are they a blast. I mean, Joe Burrow held me on the TV yesterday, and I went, pretty cool. I mean, I was looking around. It was just me and my girlfriend and my cat, but I was like, Guys, are you see- this is pretty cool. Joe Burrow is doing well. And he had this miss on third down uh, that I didn't like. He had a play where he threw a silly interception trying to flip a pass to his receiver. Got picked off. That's not good. He had a, a play where he missed a wide-open touchdown later in the game. Yeah, can't have that. But other than those three moments, everything I saw from Joe Burrow yesterday, very, very impressive, very, very exciting I feel really, really good about Joe Burrow after just one game. And there was this play where he had a long touchdown up the middle. You know, he, a quarterback draw, I believe is a quarterback designed run, runs up the middle for a touchdown. Super cool moment. I wish there had been a crowd in Cincinnati. I've been to Cincinnati to a game. I wish he could have celebrated with the fans in the end zone. It's very unfortunate. COVID-19 has taken that away from us. I'm like, ah, oh, please. It would have been awesome. And I got to say too, Joe Burrow's arm keeps getting better and better. The way Joe Burrow throws the football now compared to the way he did his first year at LSU is unbelievable. His mechanics, his arm strength, everything. He's a better, more mature athlete physically, mentally, emotionally, everything. I love, love, love Joe Burrow. I'm all in. Uh, He was absolutely, there's no debate about it. He was the right pick with the number one overall pick, and it's so cool to me. Now, what frustrated me about Joe Burrow's First ever game in a Bengals uniform yesterday. And by the way, he looks good in a Bengals uniform. The way that game ended, though, was very, very frustrating. The Bengals had the ball first and goal on the 13-yard line after a penalty. Seven seconds left. And instead of running a play on first down, trying to throw the ball to the end zone and win the game. Again, the score was 16-13. to Instead of being aggressive, putting the ball 
in Joe Burrow's hands. Joe Burrow has gotten you to this point, played really, really well all game. Instead of trying to go for the win with seven seconds left on the 13-yard line, just throw the ball into the end zone to A.J. Green. He scored on the play before. He got called for an offensive pass interference play, but he had that matchup. He could win if you throw a jump ball to A.J. Green. Instead of being aggressive, Cincinnati took the ball out of Joe Burrow's hands. They tried to kick a field goal on first down with seven seconds left on the 13-yard line, and they missed. Game over. If you miss a field goal in the NFL, no matter what down it's on, you don't get a redo. You only get one attempt at a field goal. They went for the tie game. They went for overtime. They missed, and they lost 13-16 to rather than being aggressive. And it felt like Cincinnati robbed Joe Burrow of an opportunity to win that game yesterday. I went, come on. Like, I, I know I am notorious. People say I'm a hater of the Bengals, this and that. But how do you look at what happened yesterday with Joe Burrow and feel like the Bengals organization let him down? I have to feel that way. How do you not feel that way is what I'm trying to say. Like, how do you look at the Bengals yesterday and go, they took the game out of Joe Burrow's hands. And I don't want to, the typical thing to say is, yeah, the Bengals are already letting Joe Burrow down. I know that's what people expect me to say today, but how can you not say that after watching what happened? You have seven seconds left on the 13-yard line. You can run one play and throw the ball into the end zone. I don't know how you take the ball out of Joe Burrow's hands. It was so frustrating to me. Uh, It was very sad. And I just hope that this kind of stuff doesn't continue as Joe Burrow's career goes on. Otherwise, I got to say, other than the way it ended, Joe Burrow played great. He had a couple mistakes. He's a rookie. It's his first game. No problem. The fact that he played so well, actually, in his very first game is incredibly vindicating to anybody who believed in Joe Burrow. Like, yeah, Joe Burrow has got it. I love Joe Burrow. I just hated the Bengals game management. That weird decision at the end of the game that cost him. By the way, they kicked a field goal. Two seconds were left on the clock. The Chargers had to run another play to end the game. It's like, you could have ran another play. Why would you just go for the tie? You got Joe Burrow. You took the ball out of his hands. I'm ranting now. Um, But I loved Joe Burrow's first game. I hated the way it ended. I hated the management at the end of the game by Cincinnati. Guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. When I return, we'll talk about the Cardinals and the 49ers. We'll talk about the Cowboys and the Rams. We'll talk about Dak Prescott. And then later at the end of the show, we'll do a quarterback review uh, of the weekend for uh, NCAA college quarterbacks. And we'll talk about the Tuscan Grand Prix. Guys, my name is Zach Schalmer. I'm going to take a short break. I will be right back. All right, we are back. I want to talk about, oh boy, the Arizona Cardinals. If you don't know, the Cardinals beat the 49ers yesterday, week one, 24 to 20. And so far, my 12 and 4 prediction for the Arizona Cardinals is going pretty well. It's off to a good start, at least. But winning week one made sense to me. I look at what happened where the 49ers were missing two of their top receivers. And I got to say this, I I think that ultimately next time the 49ers and the Cardinals play, I expect a close game. I think the Cardinals are going to get better as the year goes on. So will the 49ers. Jimmy Garoppolo was pretty terrible yesterday. They were missing two of their top receivers. I I think despite the fact I believe the Cardinals are going to get better as the year goes on, I so believe the 49ers will as well. I think next time they'll play could be a close game. 
But I think ultimately the 49ers win the next matchup. But again, part of why I had the Cardinals winning was because the 49ers were missing two of their best receivers. Now, the Cardinals' defense was awesome yesterday. Awesome, but imperfect. They did leave some stuff to be desired. They had some mistakes. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the 49ers were 2-11 and on third down. That's awful. That's abysmal. They were 0-7 at one point, and it got worse from there. Part of the problem there was Jimmy Garoppolo was simply not very good yesterday. I mean, Kendrick Bourne was open in the end zone at one point, and Jimmy Garoppolo threw him a really bad ball that got knocked away by Patrick Peterson. And I just, I, ugh, I think a lot of that loss was Jimmy Garoppolo not being very good. And we can maybe say it's receivers, maybe this, maybe that, but Jimmy Garoppolo's got to be better moving forward. Now, what I actually found very encouraging for the Cardinals and for my prediction of them going 12-4 and four is that they won despite the fact that their new linebacker rookie, Isaiah Simmons, was pretty average. He gave up a long touchdown to Raheem Mostert early in the game where he got caught looking in the backfield. Raheem Mostert ran right in front of him. He lost contain. Bam, easy touchdown for the 49ers. And there was another moment where on the goal line, they left a guy wide open in the flat where it was poor communication. They didn't switch very well. The Cardinals' defense, despite winning, despite doing fairly well, made a lot of mistakes, poor communication, poor job switching, just mistakes and missed assignments. I want to see that cleaned up as the year goes on. And a lot of people were surprised when the Cardinals won. I was not. I'm not going to gloat. I was a big believer of Arizona. I have been all offseason. For me, though, I'm not going to gloat because the Cardinals simply won a close game. This could have gone either way. It was a very close very intense game. I'm not going to go, I told you so, because it's eh, like, yeah, congratulations, Zach. You're, you're, the team you predicted to win won by four points. You got kind of got out of there by the skin of your teeth. And there are a lot of games ahead for the Cardinals to really make good on my prediction of them going 12-4. and four. But the reason why I have been all in on the Cardinals this year, there's one reason in particular, and that's actually because of the Ravens quarterback, Lamar Jackson. The Cardinals this year have a very similar vibe to the Ravens last year. And last year, I missed on the Baltimore Ravens. I just was wrong on them. And I do not want to make the same mistake again. And at the end of the day, when I look at the Cardinals, I say, I believe in their quarterback very strongly, and I believe in their head coach. And when you give head coach Cliff Kingsbury and Kyler Murray a ton of good people to work with. I mean, when you give talented people good teammates, I buy into that. I believe in that. I've done a film analysis of Kyler Murray. I've talked about why he's amazing a ton. Go watch my film analysis. It makes sense to me. But I still get comments from people saying that, you know, head coach Cliff Kingsbury is a person we should doubt. And I, I just, I'm so tired of this one narrative because all those people say that they say one thing. They say Cliff Kingsbury had a losing record as a college head coach at Texas Tech. And if you had a losing record in college, how could he possibly win in the NFL? And a lot of people use that as a reason why he's not going to make it in the NFL. I get it. I understand. But here's why that's wrong. When he was a head coach at Texas Tech, he kept getting out-recruited by Oklahoma and Texas and everybody else in the Big 12. And recruiting has never been what Cliff Kingsbury is best at. 
And why would he be? He was at Texas Tech. If you're, if Oklahoma came to you, or Texas Tech came to you, no offense to Texas Tech, but who's got better facilities? Who's got more money? Who's got better uniforms? Who's got a better everything? And who's got Lincoln Riley? Like, why would you go play for Texas Tech when you can play for Oklahoma? But the good news for Cliff Kingsbury is, guess what? Oh, the NFL isn't about recruiting. It's more of a level playing field. Yeah, you want to sign free agents, yada, yada. But the NFL is a lot more about schematics. And are you a good coach when it comes to play design and building an offense around your players? And Cliff Kingsbury is a great offensive mind. Paired up with a superstar quarterback, Kyler Murray. By the way, he recruited Kyler Murray. He could never get Kyler Murray because he was at Texas Tech. Kyler Murray went to Texas A&M and then Oklahoma. Cliff Kingsbury missed out on Kyler Murray because he couldn't recruit him. In the NFL, there's no recruiting. You just drafted him number one overall. You got him. You could work with him. It's awesome. And they work really well together. Not to mention they've got a good offense, a good defensive coordinator, Vance Joseph. The stuff going on in Arizona, they're building something. You better believe in them. I, I'm all in. And that's why. Because of Cliff Kingsbury, I believe in him. He doesn't have to recruit. He's a really good schematic coach who's good at building offenses. And the superstar quarterback, Kyler Murray, that is why I have no problem being all in on the Arizona Cardinals. Okay, let's talk about the Rams and the Cowboys. Need to drink some water first. The Rams beat the Cowboys on Sunday Night Football. I got a couple things to say. Number one, first of all, the Rams were awesome. They had a great game plan top to bottom. Their defense was a blast to watch. But I was really, really impressed with their running backs, Cam Akers and Malcolm Brown. Last night, the Rams made an argument to me why a running back is kind of the last position you'd want to pay in the NFL. I'd only pay a running back if I either had a ton of extra salary cap space. I'm like, we got money to spend. Let's give it to our running back. Keep him happy. Or if I was a team that really wanted to make a Super Bowl run this year and you're trying to keep your running back happy, maybe similar to what the Saints did with Alvin Kamara, the money doesn't really pencil out, but who cares about the future? We believe we can make a Super Bowl run this year. We're all in. We'll figure out the salary cap moving forward after this year, after we try to win a Super Bowl. But I look at Cam Akers and Malcolm Brown. They are combined a $2.5 million salary cap hit. Some teams are paying their running back $14 million, $12 million, $13 million. The Rams are not doing that. They found a cheaper alternative solution. I mean, they combined, Cam Akers and Malcolm Brown, combined for 153 yards from scrimmage and two touchdowns. They're catching passes. They're running the ball well. I look at what the Rams have done in two in a two-year span. They had Todd Gurley. He was great. He didn't work last year. They felt like they were overpaying him. They got rid of Todd Gurley, and they found a really good replacement for very, very cheap with Malcolm Brown and Cam Akers. It's impressive to me. And then I look at how, what Todd Gurley, the former Rams running back, is doing now in Atlanta. He's a $5.5 million salary cap hit in Atlanta, and yesterday— on Sunday, he only had 57 yards from scrimmage. I go, ooh. So they found a good solution. Teams are paying running backs a ton of money. The Rams are not. And yet they're still getting a lot of production. I love, love, love what the Rams are doing at running back. Now, number two, the Cowboys. 
it feels like nothing changed in Dallas. And I know that's harsh because they got a new coach. But yesterday, the defense was good enough to win. And Dak had really good numbers, was very solid. But at the end of the game, the Cowboys couldn't finish. Dallas, Dallas could not finish that game. And you can blame the late offensive pass interference call if you want. I understand. I watched the game and I went, that's really offensive pass interference. That's a terrible call with two minutes left. I didn't like the call. I really didn't agree with it. And I felt like it robbed Dak Prescott of a really big play at the end of the game. Maybe his opportunity to leave a mark and say, see, I can't show up at the end of a game. I felt like that was an unfair play call. Unfair call by the refs, excuse me. But it wasn't like Dak Prescott had no opportunities to deliver at the end of the game. There's a third and five I want to go to. Uh, It really stood out to me at the end of the game where the Cowboys were in a key situation, third and five, ball on the 15-yard line. They were down six points. They needed a touchdown to take the lead. And the Rams blitzed. And what did Dak Prescott do when the Rams blitzed? He didn't seem to have a plan. He didn't seem to have an idea where to go with the football. He had... Michael Gallup open on his hot route. Hey, if they blitz, we have an answer. And the Cowboys had a good play call. They had an answer. And Dak Prescott failed to find that answer. Michael Gallup, open. Why aren't you throwing him the ball? He's looking at you, and you're stuck trying to find Ezekiel Elliott not recognizing the blitz. It's like, dude, come on. It's disappointing because Dak Prescott needs to make that play. He wants to get paid. I like Dak. I'm rooting for Dak. I want Dak Prescott to deliver. I want Dak Prescott to show up. I am tired of criticizing Dak Prescott. I want Dak to make it. I believe I, I like him. I want him to do it. And consistently, he's not delivering at the end of the game. Key moments, third and five yesterday, 15-yard line. You need a touchdown. The play is there, and Dak couldn't recognize the coverage well enough to find his hot route. It's like, oh, come on. Come on, Dak. I want you to make it. Now, look at the Cowboys. They also had linebacker Leighton Vanderesh break his collarbone. He's out six to eight weeks. Uh, their tight end, Blake Jarwin, is out for the year with a torn ACL. But regardless, the Cowboys are going to live and die on how Dak Prescott does in those really small key moments. Third and five, fourth down, end of the game, in the red zone. And Dak has got to deliver. And last night, Dak did not deliver in that moment. That's concerning moving forward. My fear, unfortunately, is that the Cowboys are going to have another okay average year. Remember, I predicted them to go 8-8. Eight and eight. People were furious at me. Uh, I, in fact, I even had them beating the Rams last night, which they didn't win. So I don't know what to do now. Are they going to go worse than my prediction? I have no idea. Maybe, like, I'm wrong in a game. Who knows? But... My fear is that Dallas is going to realize, oh, this year Dak was average again with a new coach. Now, mind you, the same offensive coordinator, they kept uh, Kellen Moore, who I like, but it's weird. Maybe, maybe that's because of COVID. They're like, we don't want to teach an off- a team a new offense in a year with so much confusion going on. I have no idea, but I, I, root, I like Dak. I want Dak to make it. I think he's a good guy. I really like, in my heart, I look at him, the way he interacts with people. He's a good human being. I don't know how you can look at Dak Prescott and go, he's awful. No, he's a good person. But he's got to be better at the end of a game, and we're running out of excuses. He's got a good receiving core. They got CeeDee Lamb in the first round. They got a new head coach. And once again, 
It's another moment at the end of a game in a key situation where Dak Prescott doesn't deliver. And I don't like that. That doesn't make me happy or feel good. But the reality is Dak's got to deliver in that moment. And if he doesn't this year, I think the Cowboys might be forced to move on or at the very least say, we're not giving you the contract you want. You're not going to make elite quarterback money. We'll give you an okay contract or we'll replace you. That's the deal. Uh, I don't like saying any of that. I like Dak Prescott a lot. But unfortunately, that's what I saw last night. And that's where I feel the Dallas Cowboys are headed as a football team. Okay, I want to talk about Dak Prescott for a minute as a leader. And I want to start with a story. Uh, I need some water first. I am sure there are people out there that know this story. Uh, I know others don't. So I'm going to say this. On February 8, 2016, my little brother took his own life. Worst day of my life. It was horrible. There's nothing good to say about it. It was just awful. And so when I heard that Dak Prescott's brother also did the same thing, took his own life, I was moved inside because I'm I'm not going to say I've been through what Dak Prescott's been through. Every situation is unique, but I've been through a similar loss in my life. My brother also took his own life. And then I learned that Dak Prescott said that he struggled with depression after his brother died. And that, oh, Dak Prescott went and he got help. And so I want to be very, very, very clear. As the leader of his football team, as the or a, whether you want to say he's the leader or a leader, regardless, he's a leader on the Dallas Cowboys. As a leader, he did the right thing, going and getting help. It's kind of weird to me that people are pushing back and saying anything other than that. Here is why. I've been through this before. When my little brother took his life, I was a mess, just a, a wreck and destroyed for a long time. And the responsible thing to do is to go get help. I was a mess for a year and a half when this went down. When I got help, it made it better. And you cannot help anybody else until you help yourself. If you're on a plane and the plane is going down, they tell you to put the air mask on yourself before you put it on anybody else, your kid or your friend or your sister, or your girlfriend, whatever. Because if the air mask isn't on you and you go unconscious, you're not able to help anybody else around you. So again, I cannot say this enough. As a leader, Dak Prescott did the right thing. And the only responsible thing Dak Prescott could do was go get help. If you're struggling with a loss, if you're grieving, then you give off a certain energy. People may not be able to understand why things feel off. But the people around you, if you don't talk about what's going on, people will sense that something is off and something is wrong. And if people sense weird vibes about their leader and they don't know what's going on, that's bad leadership. If people can't understand what's going on and they they sense something weird, that's really, really bad. Again, even if it's all subconscious, it's not good. And so if you hide stuff, that's bad leadership. So if you're struggling, if you're grieving... It's better to just address it, to own it, to talk about it, to say, yeah, I'm going through this thing. It's not fun. I'm dealing with it. That way the people around you are able to understand what you're going through and what's going on. It blows my mind. I saw some people criticize Dak Prescott for getting help when he's struggling with depression after his brother died. It's so wrong to criticize somebody for getting help after their brother dies. That's, that's just ridiculous and nonsensical. And as somebody who's been through loss, I cannot encourage it enough. Go 
get help. Go get professional help. It makes a huge impact. Uh, I was very quietly, very privately concerned when I heard that Dak Prescott's brother had died. As someone who's been through my own brother dying, I thought to myself, and I didn't share this publicly because I, I didn't think it was appropriate, but it is now. I thought to myself, how can Dak Prescott handle being the Dallas Cowboys quarterback while he's struggling with grief and while he's struggling with loss? I thought it might derail his season. I went, this could be a gigantic distraction privately. Because when my brother committed suicide, I was a massive, massive mess. I was not good. Um, and for a year and six months, a little over a year and, and a little longer than six months, I, I just was aimless and destructive, self-destructive, let me be clear, making bad decisions and doing bad stuff and just a, a nightmare. Because I buried how I was feeling. I buried that. I didn't go get help. And once I finally went to counseling and got help, I got back on track. That's actually when I started Strong Opinion Sports and started making a podcast, and I've been on a, tra a trajectory ever since that feels really good. And so I am really, really, really glad that Dak Prescott got help. Again, if you're struggling with grief or loss, go see a grief counselor. They're short-term, and what they do is help you get through that moment, they help you process the pain. You don't see them forever. You go to a grief counselor. They help you get through your grief, and then you get on with your life. So I, I got to say, honestly, in the long run, and we didn't see the results of this yesterday on Sunday night. But number one, as a leader, Dak Prescott gained a lot of depth and a lot of, uh, I, think, I think, even a, an ability to relate to people around him as a leader. People as a leader go, oh, Dak's been through stuff. We, can, we have no problem going to talk to Dak. When Dak talks to you, you'll listen because he's been through some stuff. But unfortunately, that works as credibility as a leader. But he also... I think Dak might be better once he gets through the pain of losing his brother. Uh, when you go through adversity, it's kind of like hitting a fork in the road where you, you run into this fork in the road where you can get better or you can get bitter and become a bitter person. And it's very easy for loss to make you bitter because loss is often unfair and unjust. And it's not a good – it's just unfortunate and awful. But adversity can also make you grow and help you get stronger as a person and as maybe a quarterback. And it's also true that when you see a counselor, all kinds of weird, unexpected stuff can come up. Things you had no idea you were struggling with. You're like, oh, I, I didn't know this thing hampered me and this thing was holding me back and this thing. And it's all helpful when you see a counselor. And it's very possible that Dak Prescott might actually be an even better quarterback long term throughout the course of this year after going through the adversity and getting help because of it. Adversity can make you better. But again, I cannot say this enough. If there's one thing you hear from this topic, when Dak's brother died and he was struggling with depression, he, by owning it and by getting help, that was 100% the best thing and the right thing to do as a leader of a football team. Going and getting help, addressing it, owning it. I said earlier, it's good for the people around you to know what's going on in your life so they don't have weird energy and concerns and all this stuff. Dak did the right thing as a leader of his football team by going and getting help. Guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. Thank you so very much. I'm going to take a short break. When I return from this little short break, we're going to talk about the Houston Texans and the Kansas City Chiefs very briefly. People keep asking me to talk about this. Fine, we'll do it. We'll do a college quarterback review from week two of college football. And we'll end the show by doing an F1 race review, talking about the Tuscan Grand Prix. Guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. I will be right 
back. All right, we are back. Time for the last couple topics of the day. Um, first of all, people keep asking me to talk about the Kansas City Chiefs-Houston Texans game from opening night. If it wasn't a primetime game, I probably would totally ignore it because it's not a game that was very compelling to me. It wasn't very interesting. Like, look, I was happy football was back. I was like, yes, Chiefs, Texans, I'm so happy. Um, But it really went exactly like I predicted it to go. It wasn't very close. It wasn't very competitive. You know, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire went off again, another thing I predicted happening for Kansas City. And in the end of the game, I felt bad for Deshaun Watson, the Houston Texans quarterback. You know, he had multiple drops where he threw the ball perfectly. There was a drop by Will Fuller down the left sideline on a back shoulder fade where he was perfect. And his receivers couldn't pull down the ball. They had three drops, I believe three, might have been more, on Thursday. Deshaun Watson, I'm glad he's getting paid because he's not getting very much support. People are mad about the contract he got. I have no problem with it because, again, he's not getting a lot of support in Houston. It was discouraging. I don't know how you stop Kansas City. They're incredible. And uh, that, that's kind of my reaction. Not very long. I don't have a lot to say from Thursday night. It just wasn't very interesting or very compelling because it was exactly what we believed it would be. It was a blowout. Now, I watched six college quarterbacks this weekend in college football. De'Eric King at Miami. We saw Trevor Lawrence at Clemson. Saw Sam Howell at UNC. Brock Purdy at Iowa State, Ian Book, the quarterback at Notre Dame, you know, we'll talk about him, and then Spencer Rattler at Oklahoma. What I want to do is go down the list and review how they did. We'll call it college football week two because there was college football last weekend as well. So I want to start with number one, De'Eric King at Miami. Look, I love this dude. He's a great leader. He runs very, very well. He had this t- run where he ran up the middle. He's so quick. De'Eric King. I love watching the guy play all around. Now, he had this crazy play on a third, and I think it was third and nine, where he did a spin move in the backfield, he made a man miss, and he turned a play that should have been a sack into a really big gain and a first down. And I look at what De'Eric King can do physically, and I just see that some NFL coach is going to fall in love with De'Eric King and go, I love his leadership. I love his ability to run. He's not a first, he's not a first round draft pick. But some coach is going to look at De'Eric King and go, I can work with this guy. He's a great leader. He runs well. Now, the one thing I want to see from De'Eric King get better is De'Eric King needs to be better at throwing the ball along the sideline and along the perimeter. His deep ball, especially, again, down along the sideline, needs work. There were moments last uh, on Thursday night when they played UAB where he had guys open down the sideline. And he wasn't able to complete it. He just missed it multiple times. And I went, oh, dang. And it's possible. Look, Derek King has a lot of room to improve. And that's a, that's a thing he could definitely get better at. His decision-making is pretty good. He runs really well. He's a good leader. I want to see Derek King get better down the sidelines. Because against UAB, he got away with it. They're playing Alabama-Birmingham. But against a better team, that's going to cost him. And it's going to help. It's really push him down the the rankings as an NFL quarterback. He's very capable. He does a lot of good stuff. He's not making a lot of checks that Linus Grimmage is looking at. Rhett Lashley to do all that stuff. He looks at the sideline a ton. Rhett Lashley gives him the call. They make checks that way at the Linus Grimmage. So there's not a lot on his plate, I don't think, from De'Eric King. But again, he's also in his first year. Maybe if he'd been at Miami for four years, we'd see something different. But I got to see De'Eric King be better 
down the sidelines along their perimeter moving forward this year. And number two, Trevor Lawrence at Clemson. Um, look, he's had a great day against Wake Forest. Trevor Lawrence, he had he just makes the game look so easy. He was 22 for 28 passing, had 351 yards, one touchdown passing, two touchdowns rushing on the goal line. He had his own read twice where, and the defense, I don't blame them, had to focus on Travis Etienne, and Trevor Lawrence got two easy touchdowns rushing that way. His very first pass was a long corner throughout, and I went, that's incredible. And then from then, it was just all you know, all game. He just was annihilating Wake Forest. It felt bad for them. Now, Clemson also has really good play design in this play I loved where they faked a toss, like a pitch to the running back. They even had the left guard pull from left to right, and that flowed their linebackers across the field towards that fake pitch, leaving the middle of the field wide open for an easy pass by Trevor Lawrence. And I look at what Clemson is doing. They've got great schematics. Trevor Lawrence physically is unbelievable. He's already expected to be the number one overall pick. I don't see that changing at all this year as I look at the schedule ahead for Clemson. Um, they Until they maybe play a potential college football playoff game, I don't know who's going to challenge Trevor Lawrence. Maybe Notre Dame. Maybe I wa- I'll watch that game, but I, I doubt it. But I don't see Trevor Lawrence doing anything other than getting drafted number one overall in the NFL draft. He's really, really good, and he's going to have a really good year and a favorable schedule ahead of him. Now, number three, Spencer Rattler at Oklahoma. He played Missouri State. That's a team that he dominated pretty easily, as he should. But somehow, and I don't really understand how, Spencer Rattler was even better than I expected him to be. He is so... So gifted as a passer. I mean, the dude just effortlessly throws the ball. Hit a play where he's rolling left. He flipped his feet, threw the ball down, I believe kind of short of the pylon to like the three-yard line to a receiver coming back near the end zone. And I went, that's just an unbelievable throw. And the way that Spencer Rattler effortlessly throws the ball everywhere, all over the field, like a, it's just so easy for him. It's like you're throwing a Nerf football. Spencer Rattler... He's definitely got a better arm than Baker Mayfield. He might have a better arm than Kyler Murray. He is going to annihilate and shred college football. Keep your eye on him. He's going to have a huge year. And uh, I, I, I know he only played Missouri State. It's the only reason I watched was to watch Spencer Rattler. But somehow he was even better. He was even better than I expected. Spencer Rattler is going to be unbelievable in college football. Number four, Sam Howell at UNC was solid. Um, they, his team played Syracuse. They won 31 to six. Sam Howell was 25 for 34 passing 295 yards, one touchdown, two interceptions. One of them was not his fault. The other one was he had a play where deep safety, Andre Cisco, a guy who might be an NFL safety for Syracuse, read his eyes and stole a post for an interception. And it was a good learning moment for Sam Howell, where he's got to be more disciplined with his eyes and where he's leading defenders downfield. Otherwise, he had a great day. Sam Howell lost 10 pounds of bad weight this offseason. He's running really, really well. He looks faster and just more athletic running the ball. He's a true sophomore. And I got to say that Sam Howell, from a mental development standpoint, the things he's doing in UNC's offense, that's North Carolina's offense, he's ahead of everybody else his age. Sam Howell is a future first-round pick in the NFL draft. He's doing awesome stuff. I really like everything he's doing. And I'm excited to keep watching Sam Howell get better and better and better throughout college football. Now, number five, I watched Ian Book at Notre Dame. 
every time I watch Ian Book, he just confirms how average he is. That's harsh. That's mean. I don't mean to. He's a really good, very good college quarterback. I think that's it, though. He's a fine college quarterback. Great job. Ian Book, a longtime starter at Notre Dame. Great career. I don't see him doing much in the NFL or after college. He's very unremarkable physically. He's an average decision maker. And I think I'm going to stop watching Ian Book, honestly. I'm, I, I'm nothing against the guy. Seems like a nice human being. Nothing against him as a person. I hope no one, I hope, perceives this as an attack on Ian Book. But my time is very limited, and I only got so many games I'm going to watch every single weekend. I'm going to remove Ian Book from my watch list of quarterbacks to pay attention to. He's just, there's nothing outstanding, remarkable, or impressive about him other than he started for a long time at Notre Dame. And I like him, but just because you're a good, solid starting quarterback in college football does not mean you're an NFL quarterback. He had a really bad interception in the red zone where he doesn't typically do that, being a bad overthrow in the red zone. He had one touchdown pass, but it was a a 50-50 ball where his receiver kind of made him look really good. I am continually not impressed by Ian Book, and uh, he's a fine college quarterback. That's about it. I'm not really going to keep watching Ian Book. It's not really worth my time. No offense. It's just the reality of it. Number six, we have Iowa State quarterback Brock Purdy next on the list. He was really bad. And and I like Brock. Brock Purdy's been a guy, ever since I watched him play in the Alamo Bowl against Washington State a couple years ago, he's been on my list of guys to pay attention to. And his team was upset. They lost to Louisiana. Part of that was because Louisiana had two really big kick return touchdowns, one a one punt, one uh one uh you know what is it called a a kickoff return. But I saw a big red flag from Brock Purdy that is something that as an NFL evaluator, you look at him and go, that that's a that's a huge problem. It can't happen. Brock Purdy could not beat Louisiana's man coverage with his arm. He simply was not accurate enough and he had a lot of accuracy issues all day. Louisiana shut him down with their man coverage. Brock Purdy was not accurate enough to beat Louisiana's man coverage. We're not talking LSU. We're not talking Alabama or even Oklahoma. We're talking the University of Louisiana and Lafayette. I mean, that that the raging Cajuns cannot lock down your potential NFL quarterback. And so maybe it's just a bad game. But from an NFL standpoint, that's a huge red flag about Brock Purdy. The fact that he could not beat man coverage on Sunday against Louisiana. Again, not LSU. We're talking the University of Louisiana, the Rage and Cajuns. Guys, that's a big, big red flag. I'm going to keep watching Brock Purdy. I'm not ready to just erase him from the list. But as an NFL evaluator, I mean, that was a big, big problem on Saturday. The fact that he got shut down by man coverage against Louisiana. Okay, guys, I want to end the show this way with, you can skip it if you want. On Sunday, we had the Tuscan Grand Prix in Mugello. And it was a wild, weird race. Like, a lot of fun. My favorite words. I said this last week. I was so excited last week when we got to hear the words, and it's lights out and away we go. We heard that twice last week. Uh, In Mugello, on Sunday, we heard it three times because there were three standing starts where I just, oh my gosh, standing, stop, starts. What are you? There were three restarts, and not like from a yellow flag where you're moving. No, at the line, lights out, away we go. It was awesome because there were three red, uh, two red flags, which it's really rare to have one in Formula One. We had two, not one, two red flags in Mugello on Sunday. 
and by the way, the first couple laps, the first nine laps were like all basically under yellow flags where guys, it had a crash on the start. Then on the restart, another crash, just crash after crash. Ultimately, there were eight cars retired on Sunday in Mugello. You had Pierre Gasly, Max Verstappen, Carlos Sainz, Antonio Giovinazzi, Kevin Magnussen, Nicholas Latifi, and Esteban Ocon. Only 12 cars finished the race on Sunday. Just a weird, wild race. Um, I also got to say that having Max Verstappen go out, Max Verstappen on the very first lap, first he had a power unit problem. Uh, so he was losing power, had a great start off the line, was pulling up next to Lewis Hamilton, then his car just failed him and he was losing power. Then he got rear-ended. And so Max Verstappen, watching him helplessly get knocked out of this race, made me want to yell. So I have no idea. I was trying to put myself in his shoes. How would he feel? It had to be so frustrating. I have no idea how frustrated Max Verstappen must have felt on Sunday in Mugello. Uh, And at one point in the race, I mean, Mercedes was so far ahead. They were one and two. Lewis Hamilton in first, Valtteri Bottas in second. I realized there's no competition here. And for me, it was nice because I got to check out, who cares, Mercedes is so far ahead. There's no drama. There's no story there. For me, the story of the race became who's going to get third place. And it was actually Alex Albin the, from Red Bull who got P3. It was his first podium in F1. And I got to say, first of all, I'm very, very happy for Alex Albin. Awesome for him. Great finish. So cool. But it is a bit disappointing, though, because the one day that Alex Albin finally shows up for Red Bull is also the one day that Max Verstappen is out of the race. Like, come on, Red Bull. I I wonder when or if at all, can Red Bull ever put it all together where they have both of their drivers up at the front challenging Mercedes? Because it's so disappointing. Max Verstappen had that power failure on the first lap because he had this great start where he was pushing Lewis Hamilton. He's coming around the corner. He was just pulling up next to Lewis Hamilton. Then he loses power, gets pushed way back, gets knocked out of the race. And it's kind of wild because the starting grid for the race was one and two, Mercedes with Hamilton and Bottas, and then three and four, Red Bull with Max Verstappen and Red Bull with Alex Albin. And I thought maybe this is going to be the race where Red Bull can finally challenge Mercedes and bang. Max Verstappen got knocked out. Uh, I will say the battle for third was fun. In fact, Alex Albin found himself at seventh place at one point in the race, and he worked all the way back from seventh all the way up to third place. Got P3, got a podium. Pretty cool for him, but I just was so disappointed we didn't get to see Red Bull push Mercedes. Now, there's not a lot else that stands out to me from the Tuscan Grand Prix. Uh, It was Ferrari's 1,000th race. Ferrari, they were really bad. I mean, at one point, it was very... Why, like, weirdly competitive where Williams was catching up to uh, to Sebastian Vettel's Ferrari, and I went, ooh, Ferrari and Williams are on the same level right now? That's not good. Um, I also really got to say, no no hate against Ferrari. They have the special edition, like, dark red livery to celebrate their 1,000th race. I I didn't like it. I, I, I just thought it didn't look very good. Uh, I also felt bad for Kimi Raikkonen. Kimi Raikkonen is a good racer that's constantly in an inferior Alfa Romeo machine this year, and he always finds himself. Kimi Raikkonen's a good enough racer. He always finds himself in a good position where he's either like in sixth place somehow or second place. Like how, like how does Kimi Raikkonen 
get into these positions and then helplessly you watch him just get past pass after pass after pass. I just feel bad for Kimi Raikkonen every single time I watch him. And then because Max did not finish, the F1 driver standings are just kind of not very competitive anymore. Lewis Hamilton has a massive lead. Like I, the only three racers in the 100s are Max Verstappen, Valtteri Bottas, and Lewis Hamilton. But Hamilton is way ahead of both Verstappen and Bottas. And then Mercedes has a massive lead over everybody else in the, the Team Constructors Cup Championship. So I, I got no problem with it. But unless Mercedes falls apart, it's just they're going to win very easily again in Formula One. So the Tuscan Grand Prix, I thought a fun race, interesting. My girlfriend was with me, and she had a blast. So I know, again, while it's incredibly fun, it was just a kind of eh race. That's, that's not fair to the race, actually. I got to say, as I reflect on it, I felt like the results were disappointing. But the race itself, like the the hour and a half of watching F1, wild, fun, crazy. It was kind of like watching a demolition derby where crash after crash after crash and nightmare and red flag and you're cleaning up the track. It was fun. Like it was a blast. But the results were kind of nah. But that's okay. I mean, I don't watch Formula One for the results. For me, the journey of F1, the hour and a half race is why I watch it because it's really, really fun. And so for me, the Tuscan Grand Prix left me feeling... Uh, disappointed in the results, other than, hey, Alex Alvin got an, a P3. That's a cool podium for him. But the hour and a half to get there, what a blast. Kind of like, you know, I ever watch Lost? I watch the TV show Lost. And the TV show Lost is a show that the journey was fun, even if the ending was bad. Recently, F1 races have been like that for me, where, hey, it's a fun ride to get there, even if you don't like the way the thing ends. So that's how I feel about F1. The Tuscan Grand Prix was interesting. I'm excited for, I think we have a week off, then another race for the 10th race of the year in F1. I hope you enjoyed it. Please send me your feedback. I want to hear what you guys think of the race. I had a great time. I enjoyed it, guys. That's all I have for today. Hope you have a great day. Uh, I'm going to go watch Monday Night Football now while this uploads to YouTube and to iTunes and everywhere else. Hope you have a great day. But I'm bum. Bam. We are done.